0: Okay. Good. Yeah, go there we go. Okay, this is um, going to be an unusual shear, I guess. Lately, you could probably say they're all a little different, but um, we're we're going to be exploring um, the more ethical side of the law than the technical side of the law, uh, and we looked at that from a whole different perspective. About four or five sure ago, when he looked at the issue of chiyuv b'dinei shamayim, the idea of having a certain action that carries with it, I'm going to say this guardedly, and only an ethical dimension and not a legal dimension, in that the court can't a- take action against you, but you still owe God, as it were, some sort of a debt. It's not really true that you owe God that debt. You owe the the victim that debt, but the victim can't take you to court, but you should really pay but it's, it's called Chayab Bidinei That's one side of things. We're going to look at what you might argue is the opposite side of things. Meaning, um, things which are completely actionable, and where there are at least two players, the aggressor and the victim, but where all of the rules that we have been studying, really, since the beginning of the masachet. Uh, but certainly from the beginning of the eighth parak, this is still belongs to the eighth parak, even though we are currently in the ninth parak in our daily study. Uh, that um, that all of those details of paying dam for damages that your animals or that your fire or that your stationary nezet caused, um, um, and then of course moving up to damages that you yourself caused in the seventh parak by theft and the eighth parak by battery and assault. All of the laws that uh, determine what you're supposed to pay are not enough. Not enough. So uh, I want to start by looking at a story in the Torah, and then at a passage in one of the least likely books to be used for a legal text, and that is Eov. So I'll give a little introduction to Eov when we get there. Uh, The the story is the story of Avraham and Avimelech. So if you recall, just very quickly, Avraham moves down to Gerar, which is near Aza. uh, And he does this in the aftermath of the destruction of Sodom. And when he gets there, he launches into what seems to be a pattern, which is to announce that Sarah, that lovely woman who he is with, is his sister and is therefore available. And Avimelech, as Paro did, takes her into his house. And God appears to him in a dream, to Avimelech in a dream, and says that he's going to die because he's taken a woman into his house who is a married woman. And uh, Avimelech legitimately pleads innocence. And as you see in the first highlighted phrase, Adonai, Hagoy gam Now, this parsha alone is worth an hour. We're not going to do that tonight because this is not a Tanakhshir. But just the notion that Avimelech, who is a Philistine king, would have a prophecy... And moreover, that he would be an active participant in the prophecy, as in he responds to God and God responds to him as opposed to an, a, an active spectator, which is what a Navi usually is, or a passive spectator, it's itself remarkable. But the point is, uh, which is, will you will you also kill an innocent nation or destroy an innocent nation? Now, parenthetically, uh, this, if you think about it, is a very strong echo from Avraham's claims to God before the destruction of stone. And so there's there's a lot of raising Avimelech's uh, profile in this story, but not our issue. And Avimelech then says, you know, he said that he's her brother, and she said she's the sister, and I did, this, I, I did this innocently. And God then says, yes, I know you're innocent. That's why I didn't let you touch her. Now, it's unclear what that means until we find out at the end that evidently the entire household of Avimelech, including Avimelech, had had, at the very least, their uh, sexual ability uh, restrained. And so Avimelech might have wanted to have relations with the Sarah, but wasn't physically capable of it. And God says, I did that to stop you from doing a sin, because I know that you're innocent, you didn't want to do it. Now, of course, that leaves the question, what would have happened Had Avimelech yes known, does that mean God would have let him sin? And what about Sarah? So, again, not for now, but just raising the questions. The part that becomes relevant to us for this Shiur is when God then tells Avimelech what to do. It's the second highlighted phrase Return the wife of this man. He is a Navi. He'll pray on your behalf and you will live. Now, Let's think about what it is that God is telling Abimelech to do and why. He's telling Abimelech to do the most obvious thing, which is this woman who is in your house under false pretenses as a single older woman, evidently quite attractive and interesting, uh, is really a married woman, so return her to her husband. He is a Navi, which seems to be a little bit of a, a non sequitur because no matter who he is, you have to return her to her husband. And he will pray on your behalf and you will live. So, ki navihu, in the simple read of it, is really part of the second phrase, which is, since he's a navi, his prayers will be immediately efficacious. He'll pray on your behalf and you'll live, indicating that you were really on death's threshold here, and he'll save you. But notice what happens. You're returning the wife to him, and he'll pray on your behalf, indicating that there's going to be some sort of a bond between Av- Avimelech, who in this case is the, shall we say, unwitting aggressor, and avraham who is the oddly enough, very willing victim. Willing, because he set it up by but with the lie. And now, when we when all is said and done, Avimelech um returns Sarah to Avram and then he challenges Avram. Why did you do this? And Avram says, because uh, I saw that this is a place with no morality, and I thought you would kill me to get to Sarah, and I said what I said. All right, a lot of questions about that, but here's the part that, that, that we are looking at. So Avimelech gives a lot of good stuff as a payment, evidently as some sort of a mollification to Avraham. And then he formally hands Sarah over. And then he says, the You can stay in my land, wherever you want to. And then he says something to Sarah, which is a, a most enigmatic phrase. Uh, I've given a thousand silver pieces to your brother. All right. We didn't hear about that. We heard about the, the other stuff. And everybody who's anybody weighs in on what may mean. We're going to see a midrash on it a little bit later on. But somehow, Avimelech makes it clear, and this is the part that directly concerns us, that in returning um, Sarah to Avraham, Avimelech has not only paid, but has also mollified and requested or begged, really, for Avraham's forgiveness here. Now, in this case, Avimelech has a lot on the line because God has already notified him that he's really... Theoretically deserving to die. And it's Avraham's prayer on his behalf that'll save him. So he's got a lot riding on this. But watch what happens next. So Avraham prays to God. And God heals Avimelech and his wife and all of his maids, and they all give birth. What does that mean? God had stopped up all of the wombs in the house of Avimelech, because of the, the this uh, the event of Sarah being there. Sarah, the wife of Avraham. Okay, now, um, this story can be seen quite locally. You're saying, this is what happened with Avimelech. You might want to even say this is some sort of a model for interaction with uh, despots or with, uh, with uh, you know, politicos or whatever. We will see that in our Mishnah and later in the Sugya, it is it is presented as a model, a model of what, as we'll see. Um, the other sukim we're going to look at later on when we when we encounter them in the text. So I want to go straight to the Mishnah and to our Sugya. This is now at the end of Parak Shmini, and if you recall, Parak Shmini is all about assault and battery, and all of the different payments you have to make, and how we measure nezek and how we measure Tzar and how we measure Boshet. And ripui and shevet, the five different kinds of classes of payments, you have to make for battery. And then, afalpishu tenlo. So even though you pay up your debt, non nimchalo, the aggressor is not forgiven, until he requests it. Now, the, the implication is, the aggressor not only pays up, but then comes to the guy he hurt and says, please forgive me. Now, we would have good reason to think that that's unnecessary here. Why? Because let's think about what the notion of payment for nizikin is. And we've already seen so much of this in Babacama, This would almost be a good sort of summary shear sure for this component of it. Um, when, when an aggressor hurts a victim, whether it's by hand, by negligence, by his property causing damage, whatever it may be, what happens? What happens next? Well, he has to make restitution. He has to make restitution, and we would figure since restitution is what the Torah demands, and and the and the demand of restitution is normally on the high side. For instance, for nizkei mamon, it's metav. You have to spend uh, Edith, Remember from the first parak, and we, err, even in spite of the rule of mechaberal avraya. We often err in favor of the victim, not in case of a fake, but as far as evaluation, et cetera. Now, I would would easily be under the impression that once I've made that restitution, then all should be forgiven. I've done my bit. I've done a bad thing. I'm sorry. And I'm paying you, and especially when it comes to battery and assault, not only did I pay you for your damages— I paid for the shame that this, this event caused you. I paid for the pain it caused you. I paid for your medical bills. I paid for your lost wages. It's a, it's a lot of stuff. And we have every good reason to believe that the aggressor has fulfilled his obligation. And suddenly we're hit really over the head with this, which all of that is very nice, but you're not done until you ask, you ask forgiveness from the victim. And what's the proof text? Our story about Avimelech. So the model becomes Avram and Avimelech, which itself, by the way, is, is something, we're going to explore this for a couple of minutes, is something that itself, just the, not the source itself, but where the source is, is fascinating. Because normally when we work within the world of technical Torah law, detailed Torah law, mishpatim, where do we get our text from? We get our text from the middle of Sefer Shemot until the end, meaning we see that there's a norm that's established with the giving of the Torah, and then we use all of the Midrashic devices available to us to try to figure out how those rulings lead to the specific law that we that we encounter. That's how we normally do it. Here we're looking at a story in Breshit. Not only a story in Breshit, but a story involving an, an outsider. I can't call it Jewish and not Jewish, there's no such thing. But an outsider king. It's not even within the family like Yaakov and Esau. It's Avimelech. So what does that tell you about the principle that they're trying to 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 you kind know, of exploit from here, if you will, that they're trying to, to to pull out from this story? It seems that there is and this may give us a fresh look at the whole world of Mishpatim, of course, is this week's parasha, so that's a nice piece, but at the whole world of Nizikin, which is the technical laws of Nizikin, of Chatsi Nezek for a short time, and Modemikas Patur, and all of those specific things which are within the post Sinai system, may be working within the technical realm of liabilities and debts, etc., and that maybe there is a more universal and more inherent mode of restitution. If you, it's not really restitution, but in in a sense, that is that the Torah already recognizes. And for that, we can go back to Brashit, and that is that when you have harmed somebody, you need to ask for their forgiveness. And all of the other pieces of the law that later on, later on top, that are laid on top of that, including financial debts and consequences, etc., don't cover that issue. That issue is more essential and more basic. All right. So now, achzari, and now there's another piece to the puzzle. How do we know that the that the victim should not be ruthless, should not be uh, resistant to saying, "Okay, I forgive you." that Avraham indeed prayed for Avimelech. So we see that Avraham didn't say, well, you took my wife, I can't believe it. Instead, Avraham seemingly immediately prayed for Avimelech and he was receptive to Avimelech's uh, Avi request for, for forgiveness. But there's there's a major difference here between Avraham and, and and the Gomorrah, because wow. the Gomorrah actually physically harm somebody or financially harm somebody or something. Right, because of hocus pocus or midrash, whatever it is, Sarah was never harmed. Avram was never harmed directly. Well, it's not, not exactly hocus pocus. It's <laughs> Akedot Baruch intervening, and it's not in the Gemara, it's in the pasuk, and prevented Avimelech from being able to do what, has, what his he would have wanted to do. Right, but he never did. He never did it. Never, so, did it. so, so every, but do you understand the difference in in what Sherman Sherman's raising? And I think that that actually speaks to what I'm the point I'm trying to make, is that the The world of formal torts, which define property and define um property damage, meaning damage caused by my property, what we call these on and battery and theft and everything else, which has infinite um um i i identifiers and and uh and parameters. You, you uh, have right now we're dealing with in our daf about shinui Kone. If I steal some wool and within, and I dye it, does the wool then become mine because I've dyed it and such that I then don't return the wool, but I return the value, et cetera. Or I, I steal a lamb and in the meantime the lamb gets sheared. Those, that's all within the technical world of we'll call it post them And now there may be a more elemental thing going on, which is when a person harms another person's interests whether it be by actively damaging their property or actively assaulting them or by taking their wife away, whatever it may be, even if nothing happens, it may put us into a a, a general area in which those the, the, all those details don't matter anymore. They, of course, matter when it comes to payment. They don't matter for this. And I think your question actually raises the specter of this entire scene as being over, Overwhelming the 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 rules. And not overshadowing exactly, but really outshining. So we'll see a little bit more. Let's take a look at Tosefta. But I'm glad you raised that, Sherwin, because that's I think exactly the point here. The Tosefta. Now, this is now a whole new layer of what happens, which is if an aggressor hurts a fellow, even if the aggressor doesn't request, doesn't ask for forgiveness, the victim has to pray on behalf of the aggressor. Now, we've raised the the moral demands placed on a person by so many degrees between the Mishnah and the Tasefta, because in the Mishnah, the only demand that we had was that not only does the aggressor have to pay money, the aggressor also has to come and request forgiveness. And, oh yes, the victim has to be ready to accept it and say yes. Here, even if the aggressor doesn't ask for forgiveness, the victim still has to pray on behalf of the aggressor. Now, what does it mean to pray on behalf of the aggressor? And here's where, again, Sherwin, the distinction between the Avimelech case in most cases is most stark. Because in the Avimelech case, Avimelech comes in pain, with the whole household in pain, saying, please, take your wife. You know, and, and this is a scene we saw with Paro. Paro didn't make this request. And, and the expectation is that is going to pray for him and, and the God will heal him and take away this curse or plague, or whatever it is. But here, notice that it's, that Avra, it's as if Avraham has to pray for Avimelech even though um, Avimelech didn't make the request of him to pray for him. Avimelok mean, just said, Here, and take your wife. And Avram initiated the idea of intervening on his behalf. Now, how would this translate into a normal case? Because in a normal case, you don't have an aggressor trying to hurt someone. And then as a result, the aggressor suddenly having a terrible disease, which is clearly the result of his actions, and that the victim has to stand up and say to God, Listen, let him go. Now, by the way, you do have a case like this in the Torah, and that is, of course, Miriam and Sarat, which happens because she speaks against Moshe, which is why Moshe has to ask God to heal her, because he's the one who was insulted. But that's a little different. It's family. There's a lot of differences there. And they don't go there at all as a proof. I haven't seen that in any of the sources, but we'll see a couple other sources. And now, v'chena tamotzei b'rei'ei so this is now going to open the door to Eov, and I'm going to go there right away tack to, to the first page. All right, let's talk Eov for a little bit. Um, who is Eov? So if you recall, from the end of the first of Matra, the answer is, we have no idea. Eov could be, Eov is clearly not a Jewish person. Eov is somebody who lives evidently in the East, and is part of the tradi- the East wisdom Eastern wisdom tradition, whether it's Jordan or wherever it may be. And uh, the Chokhmah Kadem. Kedem, and uh, Yehov is somebody who lives anywhere between during the times of Avram and the times of the of the of the of the, of the uh, uh shall we say All right. There's a long span of years during which Avram, which uh, Yiov could have lived, and of course there's the famous opinion Yehov lo hayav velu niavram the opinion which the Rambam adopts in his commentary in in Moranavuchim which is that Eov never really lived, and Eov is a fable. And the fable works as follows. Or The story works as follows. The middle 39 chapters of Eov, 39 and a half chapters of Eov, from chapter 3 through the middle of 42, uh, are a poetic um, polylogue between essentially five different people. However, the first two Prakim and the end of the last parak are written as narrative and they set up the and they're there ostensibly to set up the um, kind of the, the framework for this dialogue. It's something, by the way, that was used by authors in later times also. For instance, the Kuzari. The Kuzari is a most of it is a dialogue between a king and the Haver, which of course there was no dialogue between the king and the Haver, Rabbi Levy wrote it as a defense of Judaism by having questions placed in the to the by the king and the chaver, who's the voice of the Rabbi Levi, then describes the basics of Judaism in a philosophically endearing way that would work. But point is that that this style is not unique to Eov. Um, and so the notion is that the First two chapters, which have the scene in the heavenly retinue and Eov being attacked, etc., and then at the very end, when Eov has everything restored, are the narrative framework or the envelope for the middle 39 and a half chapters, which are the dialogue, polylogue between Eov and three of his friends who come to comfort him in a, in a roundtable form. Eov speaks, and then Eliphaz answers, then Eov speaks, and, and Mitzelfar answers. Eov speaks, and Bildad answers, and that goes around three times. And then there's a fifth character named Elihu ben Berech El, who comes in and says, basically, I'm younger than all you guys, and I thought I'd hear some wisdom here, but you guys have no idea what you're talking about. And he reams them for several chapters of his own soliloquy. And then, finally, the most important character comes in at the end, and that is Hashem, who answers EO from the whirlwind, in Perak, Lamedetet, and Lametet and Mem, and Memalv. It's fabulous, fabulous text. Very hard text, most difficult book in Tanakh, almost assuredly. Uh, for lots of reasons. But at the end of Yeov, again, in the narrative portion, um, God has excoriated Yeov's three friends for not treating Yeov properly and not responding to things properly. And so now watch what happens. So this is now towards the end, in source three. Vahiachar diber Adonai el Eov. So God spoke to Yeov. So God speaks to Eliphaz and says, this is not Eliphaz, the son of, uh, of Esau. Eliphaz, I am angry at you and your two buddies. Build out in so far. You have not spoken correctly to me as Eov did. And that, you have to see the, the end of uh, the Eov's response to God's soliloquy. Here we go take seven cows, seven oxen and seven rams, go to Eov, and Eov, by the way, places Eov very much in a a, uh, sort of a parallel with Avraham, and bring an ola, and Eov will pray for you, I will listen to him, I will show favor to him, that I won't do something bad to you. Meaning, if he prays for you, I'll, I'll listen. And now, what happens at the end of this? God favors Iov, and God listens to Iov's prayers, and Iov prays for them. What does God do? He restores the fortunes of Iov. Because he prayed for his friends. Right? That's the key line. That's why I put that in red. Hashem restores the fortunes of Eov because he prayed on behalf of his friend or friends. Right. So now, as you see here in, in the Tosefta, the same thing you find with Eov's friends, and he quotes, the, the, the Tosefta quotes the Pasuk. And watch what happens is that Eov prayed for them. We don't hear that they actually came to Eov and said, we're sorry. But he prays on their behalf because he realizes they are in disf- heavenly disfavor because of what they did. He was the one they did it to, and therefore he prays for them. Now, Sherwin, again, you could raise, and I, I would be with you to raise, the challenge But this is really not like Nezek. Eov's friends did not do anything to Eov that's actionable. They did not do anything in in which uh, he could sue them for anything. And that's why I think this is the most elemental place. I'm going to come back to Eov in a minute because I think Finding the source in you was also telling, <clears throat> but that's I believe the point is that there's an elemental human dimension to you need to make things right with the person you harmed, whether the harm is emotional, whether it's cyberbullying, whether it's ramming your car into their car, it doesn't matter, whether it's something that's a clear tort with with uh, specific uh, financial parameters and debts, or whether it's Something that's purely emotional or even deprivation, that you need to, um, several things that the, the person who caused the damage needs or the caused the harm needs to and caused the distress needs to request of the person they distressed for them to forgive them. And on the other hand, when the person who was distressed sees that their distressor is suffering as a result or finds out they're suffering as a result, They need to pray on their behalf, which, if you think about it, is a phenomenally, I would say even progressive, but it's a phenomenally um, uh, uh, high demand of a person's ethics. We're going to see more about that, but I want to get back to, uh, to the issue of EOV. As I mentioned earlier, EOV is not presented as a Jew. Neither are his friends. None of them are, even though the names are all familiar type names. But there's nothing Israelitish, if you will, about anything in the book. There's no mention of anything of ritual or of location or of of practice, anything of history. Nothing in it. Not Yitziat Mitzrayim and not Matan Torah and not Deshma Yisrael. There's nothing in Sefer Yov. And Sefer Yov, if you think about it, would be rife for mentions like that. But part of the reason seems to be that Eov is presented deliberately as an everyman. In other words, that the problems that plague, say for Eov, and that plague Eov and his friends, are problems that are problems of humanity, not of Jews. Everybody in the world has these issues. The basic issue of theodicy, how can bad things happen in this world if God is in control, and the specific issues of how much is God... Speaking on individual things and stray thoughts, etc. All the things that are brought up in Eov are universal. And the and part of what the text does to make that happen is that eov is an Ish And Utz, if you recall, is a name of one of Betuel's kids. It's B'tuel's eldest kid. Right? Um that's, sorry, Nachor. It's Nachor's eldest kid, Betuel's brother which makes him part of some pre-Avrahamic world, or shall we say, Abrahamic world, but pre world worldview world, pre-Bene Israel world, out there somewhere in Aram. And there's even a mention of the, of the coin Ksita that's used in Eov, which we only find in the story of Yaakov buying a field from Shechem. In other words, it's all places a pre-Matan Torah kind of story. And it doesn't matter when it happened, it's presented that way. And so the idea is that Eov is actually the best book to pick, to find a source for something which is an elemental human obligation and moral desideratum. And so I think that's why they're going there. We'll see a little bit more from there later on. Now, at the end of the Tosef, this is a pasuk here in Dvarim, when it says that you have to, when you conquer the, the pagan cities in Canaan, don't take any of their avodah with you. And then, v'natam God will give you compassion and will have compassion over you. Which, if you think about it, is a little bit of a superfluous phrase. And so the drasha is, Not that God will have compassion on you and give you compassion. That's just repeating itself. But that if you are compassionate, God will be compassionate with you. And we're going to see more about that in the Gemara, beautifully. Okay, so if you recall, in the Gemara's discussion of this this piece, there was a whole series of questions that Rava posed to Rava Bar-Mari. Rava Bar-Mari was an Amorah Eretz Yisraeli who then moved to Babel and became something of an Agadic teacher to Rava. We don't hear about him very much. And Rava almost always is interacting, if he's interacting with his Rebbe, it's Rav Nachman, or sometimes Rav Yosef. And that's in the world of Halacha. But Rava Bar-Mari is his sort of Agadic teacher, and there's a whole series of questions, if you recall, where Rava poses to Bar Barmari the question, what is the source in Tanakh for this common folk saying people have? And he would find him a pasuk. So for our purposes, it was, or sometimes it was a folk saying, sometimes it was rabbinic saying, if you, if you ask Hashem for something on behalf of a fellow, and you happen to need the same thing, you will actually be answered first. In other words, the idea of you praying on behalf of another is seen as a a noble act, a noble act that is a worthy act, and therefore if you're praying for them because of something that you also happen to need, that you'll be answered first. And we'll talk about that in a minute because the nature of this particular she'er is that we need to kind of explore that. He says, what's the source of that? So Rabbi Barmari answered, Look at the last Pasuk here in the section from Eov. Hashem restored the fortunes of Eov as he was praying for his friends. In other words, his friends were in trouble. Eov was in trouble. Eov was in terrible trouble because he'd lost everything. And Hashem restored his fortunes praying for his friends. Didn't say that Hashem took care of the friends. Now, the interesting thing here is that we don't hear that the friends were suffering at all as much as they were on a hot seat. But Rabbi Barmari is trying to find a source in the text for this phrase, that if you pray be out for somebody else. So let's explore that for a moment. What does it mean to be praying for somebody else for something that you need? And the classic example, of course, is you are not well. And yet, when it comes to Rafainu, you know of somebody, maybe a soldier, or maybe somebody who was hurt seriously on October 7th, or anybody else, somebody in the community, and you're putting all your devotion to praying for their well-being and their speedy recovery. In the meantime, you're also not well. Now, for many people, this is second, na- second nature, because this is part of who we are, and we're going to see a point about that. But think about how noble a thing that is to do. I'm standing before God, who is the Rofa That If I need a refuah, that's who we go to. And in that context, I am beseeching that God heal my friend, even though I need healing. Now, what about my own needs? So, several options. Option one is we work out a deal. I'll pray for Mikey, and Mikey will pray for me. That's possibility one, right? Possibility two is that I will pray for Mikey, knowing this Gemara. Do you like either one of those? They're both selfish. <laughs> They're both selfish. It's game playing. It's yeah. game playing. So I think what, what's really going on is I'm praying for Mikey because it's my job as Mikey's friend, as a member of Mikey's community, whatever it might be, to pray on behalf of Mikey. I am going his barclays, God, his a bone with me, whatever he'll worked out. In the meantime, I got to pray for Mikey. Now, think about what that means. Let's say I was healthy. I am healthy. But let's say somebody who's perfectly healthy is praying for Mikey. That's very nice. And you're, and you're, and you are morally developed enough to realize that outside of yourself, there are people who don't have it as good as you. And you're praying for them. That's a beautiful thing. But think about how magnanimous it is to actually be sick and then praying for somebody else to get better. That means that you're you're actually seeing the other person's. Welfare, as shall we say, at least equal to yours, which is very powerful. And we're going to circle back to that at the end of the sheer on in, in the whole main topic of the sheer of how we're supposed to look at each other, which is really what this whole thing is about. So now, watch what happens. So Rava says to Rav Amari, that's your source for this idea that if you pray for somebody else, you get answered first. Watch this, it's really cool. I got a different source, which by the way means I think I got a better source, right? Watch, right, and by the way, we'll see why it's better, right? Okay. Avram prays to God, this is again the Avimelech story, notice by the way that the Avimelech story just keeps circling in the, in the sugya. God had stopped up all of their wombs Avram prayed And they give birth. Now, stop and think who's doing the praying here. Avram is praying for Avimelech's family to get better because they have had all of their reproductive systems stopped up. Who is the great-grandfather of stopped-up reproductive systems? Avram. Avram. yeah. Most famous husband of a barren woman in history, probably. And yet he's praying for them. What happens next? Now, you all know the line; it's the opening line in uh, Blaining on Roshana. Hashem remembered Sarah as He said. Now, the simple meaning of that is, as God promised, He did what He promised. But the drush is "Kasher Amar meaning Hashem remembered Sarah just like Avram asked for Avimelech, and it's Hashem. Avram said, "Hashem, Avram said, Hashem, please." Heal Avimelech and I'll let them get, have birth, etc. And here's Avram who's been suffering his whole life. That Sarah hasn't been able to give birth, and now he's uh, getting close to 100 years old. He's 99, and uh, and and suddenly Sarah becomes pregnant. It's beautiful. It's gorgeous. So now the the Gemara then uh, spins off in a couple tangents, but that are related. Tangents that are, again, related to the whole issue of standing up on behalf of somebody else, but now in the opposite way. Take a look. Let's say you get up and complain to God. Now, Din typically means you rat out to the authorities. That's not what it means here. It means you rat out to the authority, capital A. You complain to God about what somebody's doing, which is, of course, the opposite of what we've been talking about. Who nenash so if you call God's attention to what somebody else is doing or doing to you, then you get punished first. And now, what's the proof text? Back to Avram. When Hagar gets pregnant, if you recall, and Hagar starts acting all uppity. And uh, and Sarai now called, come brings Avram together and brings Avram. She doesn't say anything to Hagar, she yells at Avram. She gets angry with Avraham and she says, I'm angry at you because I gave you my shifcha and now she's pregnant, etc., etc." So now she is complaining really to God because she says, she about Hagar. What happens? Sarah kota, who died first? Now you would think that the issue would be who died first, Sarah or Hagar? The, the answer, whether you like it or not, Hagar in the story is a thing, not a person, in this particular piece of the story. Sarai hands Hagar over to Avraham, and then Avraham then hands her back to Sarai, and Sarai afflicts her. It's when Hagar runs away that her personhood is realized, and when the Malach speaks to her. But, but who is the person who Sarai is angry at? She's angry at Avraham. And she yells at Abram, God should punish you for the way that you will allow da, 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 da. and who dies first? Sarai dies first. All right. Now notice how this is the flip. It's the other side of the coin of what we just talked about. You pray on behalf of somebody else, you're answered first. You complain to God about somebody else's behavior, guess what? God notices your behavior first. Right, I'm Rabbi Yitzchak. Woe to the one who does the yelling more than the one they're yelling about. And this, by the way, is right in this week's parasha. Uh, make sure not to take the a, a, a pledge, as it were, from a poor man because he'll have nothing to lie and he'll cry out. And I will hear him. All right? So, the, 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 but in this case, the tsoik is not somebody who's justifiably calling up, but somebody who's complaining to God. So, God will, will, will attend to the one he's complaining about, but he'll com- he'll attend to you, the complainer, first. All right? This is just a beautiful piece tailing off from, from the, uh, Abimelech story. Don't ever take the, the curse of an of a simpleton uh lightly the simpleton here meaning not a prophet mm-hmm. All right Avimelach now this is not the simple read of the text remember i told you that that line where avimelach says right here at the at the source 1 near the bottom um is a is an enigmatic phrase and so the midrash picks up on it and says that is as if to say you hid your identity from me and I'm complaining about that and so now what's the drasha? meaning you kept it hidden from me that Avram was your husband and you caused me all this pain you should have kids who have who are blind and, of course, what happened? When Yitzchak got old, way, way, way before he died, he already went blind. And so the Midrashic tie-in is that this is Avimelech's curse, which, by the way, is an interesting piece, because it now means that Hashem listens to Avraham, and he, he and he answered Avraham before he answered Avimelech, because Avraham prayed on behalf of Avimelech about a problem that he also had. But now look how all of this gets connected. Avimelech cursed Sarah, and the text here seems to say it was a justified curse, and the curse actually took hold. Now, does that mean that they should have taken what he said more seriously, and Avram should have said to him, please forgive me, and then maybe Yitzhak wouldn't have gone blind? I don't know. That may be part of what's going on here. Because think about the phrase, al he hedyot kala don't let the curse of a simple person be light in your eyes. What does that mean? If it means when he cursed you, you just better buckle your seatbelt and get ready for uh, for uh, the curse to happen, that's not helping very much. Perhaps what it means is that when he curses you, you should take it seriously and say, ooh, God will listen to him. He might be a nobody, but God will listen to him because he's not a nobody. And I better go mollify him and ask him to remove that curse, ask him to forgive me. All right. Right. better to be the pursued than the pursuers all right better to be predator than prey because the birds that are that are always prey are the little turtle doves all right and by the way, there are no predators that are kosher, not birds not not mammals and no predators that are kosher um Famous story I heard years ago that the Rabbi Riskin told. Uh, he said that there was a uh, a group of Talmudim with the Rebbe who, in, in, during the Holocaust, was marched out to the forest, and they already knew what was happening, and they were told to dug a, dig a big pit and stand by the pit, and um, they knew what was going to about to happen, and the uh, the Rosh Hashiva or whoever was their Rebbe uh, asked the Commandant for permission to say one prayer before he would kill them. So he said, okay, one prayer was about me, one prayer. And so he, he intoned very loudly and with a lot of kavana, shalom hasani goi. And the commandant asked, uh, found out, like, what is this prayer you're saying? He had nothing to lose. He said, I thank God for not making me a goy." And the commandant was like mystified. He said, I don't understand. It's because you're Jewish, you're being killed. You're thanking God that you're Jewish? I mean, that's like strange. And he said, in a world that's divided between murderers and victims, I'd rather be a victim. Now, of course, the question is how do we know the story? I'm not going I'm not to. Anyhow, um, okay, the Yerushalmi, just very quickly, uh, has Tani Rabbi Yuda Shame Ramban Shum Ramangamliel. Harehi Omer, the Pasuk we saw from Dvarim. Simanze Kosman. Sha'at Rachman, As long as you are. A uh, a uh, a compassionate person, then God will have compassion on you. We're going to see at the very end another piece in the Rambam related to this. If you're not compassionate, God won't be compassionate with you. Rav So in other words, uh, somebody uh, some, somebody hurt you, and then they ask for you to forgive them, and you stick to your guns. and says, I'm not going to forgive you. Well, why should God? Why should God forgive you? Adam I think we're all familiar with this from, from not from this Yerushalmi, We you know this from the Rambam, that if a person hurt another fellow and, and asked him to forgive him and he refused, he should get a whole line of people with him, a whole delegation, bring a whole delegation to ask him to forgive him. This was, I don't think today people do behave that way, but in the ancient world, that was a way to really show a lot of honor. We're going to look at this passage right now. We'll look at the passage in Eov. He puts a limit on that. That's only if the offender did not slander the victim. You can't, you can't get forgiveness for that. You slander somebody, there's nothing you could do. That's an interesting thing to put. say that there's actually a limit on this. So before going to the last sources I want to look at, I want to go back to Eov, because there's another passage here in Eov Lamed Gimel. Um, Eov Lamed Gimel is Elihu's... Um, near the beginning of Elihu's soliloquies. Uh, again, Elihu is the fifth guy to show up. There's Eov and his three friends. I'm not talking about Eov's kids and Eov's wife. They're just... they're, they're, they're foils. But Eov and his three friends... And then when all four of them have exhausted their talk, Elihu comes in and says, I thought you guys were so smart. I thought you knew what you're doing. You guys know nothing. And he starts reading them the right act about how they don't understand anything. He gets his, when Hashem says, none of you understand anything. Now in in Elihu's piece, which starts in Periklamet Bet, all of Periklamet Bet is an apologia. I don't really deserve to speak in front of you. And I thought you knew it's all of that. And then in Mamad Gimel, he actually starts uh, describing and he describes it in terms that that sound like the beginning of Eliphaz's first talk, which is in the, in a dream, I had a vision and I understood, da da, da, da. And so he then says, Bakalom bin He didn't think we'd be studying Eeyov in a bovakamash here. But Khazyon Laila in in a vision when people sleep, Mishkav, remember Eov is very poetic. That's when people suddenly hear and they hear this message, and in in and in their affliction they get it. <laughs> to afflict somebody and to um and to keep things hidden from somebody, <laughs> to save a man from destruction. Shachat <laughs> here being another word for sort of the Hades. <laughs> and from their life being spent away. He is afflicted with pain on his bed, and his and his bones are afflicted. He can't eat. A man's sick. His his uh, his flesh gets eaten up, and his bones are like disappearing. And it sounds like uh, the end of Koala. You know, bird night. I'm, I'm team, he's about to die. And now, this is a line I think we all know. If he has one malach who can speak on his behalf, out of a thousand, to tell speak of the man's straightness. In other words, here's somebody who's dying, and in Shemayim, he's being judged unfavorably, and one malach, if one malach can come up and say some good stuff about him. the and have him saved and say save him from going down to the descent matsati kofar i found redemption rutapash pesaromi that's a unique word in hepax it says skin is more tender than a little childs yashuv me'alumav, in other words here the person gets healed now here's the part i highlighted yatar el he should pray to god and mollify him and and call out, yell out to see him, and restore his righteousness to people. Yeah, here we go. Yashor al anashim, he should. And the way we're reading it is, make a row of people, by Yomar and say, "I have sinned." Viashar I have sinned directly, and it's beneath me. Then he'll be saved. Et cetera, et cetera. And the idea that Chazal are reading in that word Yashur, I just want to give you the whole context is that when you have sinned against somebody, you have to make a row, as it were, of people and line them up and use them as a delegation to come and ask forgiveness. Now, again, the significance of this coming from Sefer Eov both in the narrative of Yeov, of Eov's friends and in praying for them, and this little bit from Eov is again to make this, and then have the key text in the Torah that tells us this, is a story about Avimelech, an, an outsider king, and in Brashit, is to tell us that this is an elemental component of human interaction that predates both chronologically and, and metahistorically predates Sinai is more elemental to the human condition and to society, as HaKadosh Baruch Hu wants it to be. And so that takes us to this very famous Mishnah. You all know this Mishnah. It's the last Mishnah, the last Mishnayot, in Masachet Yoma. Right, if a person says, I'll sin, I'll do Tshuva. I'll sin, I'll do Tshuva. Now, yeah, you can't do Tshuva. If you say, I'll sin, Yom Kippur's coming up soon, then I'll be okay. doesn't work. In other words, you can't plan on the fix when you do the wrong thing. And now, So sins between you and God, Yom Kippur, can effectively create the Kapparat. What about sins between you and another person? Now, what does sins between you and another person mean? Normally, when it comes around Yom Kippur time and we start making a Cheshbon, hopefully we do make a Cheshbon, and we shouldn't wait till then. We should do it all the time. But typically, what do we think of as fitting on that list? What sort of things do we normally put in here, in our head? what do you think of? I insulted you. Insulting, mm-hmm. right. Al-shinhara. Al-Shinhara. We don't think about, uh, you know, I uh, scratched your car. We don't think about that. Notice, Yom Kippur doesn't work until you, uh, until you mollify him. question is, is that the way to read it? Meaning, the simple read of it is, you have to mollify him and Yom Kippur has to come. Why? Shouldn't it be, you have to mollify him and that's it? So you could say within the context of Yoma, they're trying to talk to Yom Kippur, but it could also be that there's now a new wrinkle to this whole piece which is, I think, what makes this entire piece just so so supreme, so beautiful, is that in my interactions with my fellow man, there are a number of angles at which to look at those interactions. And if the interactions are negative, are hostile, are neglectful, are dismissive, whatever it may be, the first thing is I've hurt another person. And because I've hurt another person, I have to indemnify. I have to make restitution. Whether or not there is a financial uh, amount that I can associate with that damage, I also have to ask his forgiveness. But then there's a whole other piece to the puzzle. What does it mean if I insult you? So the very famous story of Rabbi Lazar who was riding, I think, on, a, on his way up to, to Akko or something, and he saw a man who was just like wh- horrendous looking, and he made some sort of comment about it and the fellow turned around and said complain to the manufacturer and all felt terrible and he and he and he started serving this guy it was like terrible because you realized you insult a person you're insulting god you're hurting a person you're hurting god so now look at the line you've insulted another person Yom Kippur is needed to be mechaper, but first you have to get the person's okay because Yom Kippur is between you and God for what you did to the person. That's also part of your chatpon with God. But it doesn't work unless the other person says, okay, I forgive you. Right? So if you take a look here in, in the Rambam, we're going to end with these two Rambams, uh, which as always is just like so elegant. The Rambam in this topic shows up in two places. It shows up in Hilchot Chovel Mazik, damages, battery and assault, and Hilchot Shuva. Watch how he how he presents it in Chavalamazik. There's a critical difference between hurting your property and hurting your body. Right now, by the way, we saw that already in another context, which is that I have the right to say to you, you could um, you could uh, break my golf clubs, and I and I and I won't, I won't hold you liable. And if I say I won't hold you liable, you do it in your patur. I do not have the right to say to you, you can punch me in the face. And if I say you can punch me in the face and I won't take you to court, if you punch me in the face, I take you to court. And you owe me the five things. That's one difference. But watch this other difference. Watch the language of the Rambam. It is so gorgeous. Listen, if you hurt somebody's property, the minute you pay him what you owe him, you have got atonement. Atonement, I want you to hear the word, atonement. So you scratch somebody else's car. The minute you pay him, give him the insurance, whatever it is that you do, you have achieved kapara. Why is kapara needed when you've hurt somebody's property? Because that's also a violation. And the kapara is purely in the hands of the victim. And when the victim accepts your money, that's it. And by the way, he can be upset at you and everything like that. You're still off the hook because it's property damage. If you hurt, assault a person, remember the five payments. Even if you bring all the offerings in the world, two things: you have to ask and request. Um, forgiveness and he has to forgive you. So that's if you've hurt him. Now, by the way, so far hurting sounds like assault. The victim can't be um, harsh about it. This is not the way of the Jewish people when the when the aggressor has asked you to forgive you, has, has asked for forgiveness, and begged once and twice, and the victim knows that this guy really means it. Notice that's a, a piece of it also. And regrets what he did, he should forgive him right away. The quicker you forgive him, the better it is. And the Chacham liked that. Right? Um, now, um, the rest of what the Rambam talks is about the thing that I mentioned before is that if you say you can hurt me and be patur, you can't, etc. But now look what the Rambam writes in Chuva. Chuva and Yom Kippur only work for things between you and God. Let's say you ate something prohibited. I in, had uh, inappropriate sex. Now notice he gives examples. going meaning you attack somebody. cursed him. Oh stole from him. li You're never forgiven. You have to pay him what you owe him. And you appease him. Even though you paid him you still have to appease him and request that he forgive you. If, even if all you did was insult him, only used words, there's no financial component. So you still have to appease him and bug him until he forgives you. What if the God doesn't want to forgive you? You bring three of his friends, they say, please forgive forgive this guy. He really means it. You come back again. After you've done that three times, then you give up. I've done everything I can. He refuses. But you have to really mean it. The guy refuses to, to forgive. Now he's the sinner. But if the guy that you hurt was your Rebbe, then you have to go more often, etc. I'll share the last line and then and then bring this together. <laughs> You're not allowed to be to be a stick in the mud and not allow yourself to be mollified. You have to be easygoing and easy to be appeased. It should be hard for you to get angry. And when he the guy says, "Please be mochel me," you have to be, you have to forgive him with a full heart with a desiring soul. Even if the guy really hurt you. You can't keep a grudge, certainly not to take vengeance. This is the way of the Jewish people. Notice what he says. From Amos, talking about Esav and Edom, that they held on to their anger forever. And the, the Midrash about that is. If you remember the story with the Givonim and David and Shaul, um, that's, uh, that's also the Givonim. And that's, remember, the Goron Yuvil, that's why David distanced them. Now, putting this all together, and again, I admit from the beginning, this is an unusual shure, not typical for what we do, but I think a vital piece is that what we've seen is that within the entire uh, framework and the entire matrix of laws with financial restitution for damages that we've been dealing with since the opening word Arba'ah in Masachet Babakama, and which reached really a crescendo in the 8th parak with Chavala, with five different kinds of payments, we suddenly have a whole new page open up, which is to say that everything that we've seen there about all of those details are post-Sinai. But there's something more elemental, something that belongs to Breshit, belongs to EO, belongs to the essential way people should be interacting and the way that a healthy society would be interacting, which is for us to be concerned about the impact we have on others, to put others' feelings first, to put other people's concerns first. We have the promise that when we do that, ultimately, and we have rachamim, then our Kodesh Baruch Hu has rachamim on us, and we pray for somebody else. Kodesh Baruch Hu listens to to our needs that even aren't expressed necessarily, but he knows what they are. And that in our interactions with others, we need to be concerned with the, the liability as the starting place, not the ending place. Because the end of the road isn't, okay, I I hurt you now, I paid you now, we're done. But rather, oh my gosh, I hurt you. Okay, I pay you, that's pshita, And now we got to really work on healing the relationship because that's where it's really got to be at. So um, I think Masach Bavakama in this sugya really takes us to a whole new level of understanding what the Mishpatim, which we're dealing with this week in the parashah, with the entire structure of the Mishpatim, is there as a framework for developing something that's actually far more noble and uh, far more hopeful about, uh, about, about how society should be operating.